This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, in less than two months since January the 23rd, which was the first Asian Insider on the novel coronavirus, it has turned into a global pandemic. It's almost no point giving you numbers because they change every hour. And in some countries, and certainly here in the United States where I am sitting now, they are only going up. But in some countries, the rate of increase is actually slowing. Today, we look at Southeast Asia. What are the numbers and are there any lessons? And on the line, I have colleagues from The Straits Times in three cities. Tan Huyi in Bangkok, Arlena Arshad, normally in Jakarta, but currently in Singapore, and Nadira Rodzi in Kuala Lumpur. Quite amazing to see all four of, all four of us together, actually. Good to see you. Good to see you. Hi, Namal. Good to be here. So, Huyi, perhaps I should start with you. What is the sense in your patch of mainland Southeast Asia? Are governments on top of this? Are numbers rising at a slower or faster rate? Tell us which countries are strong in terms of response and which are less strong or have a serious problem. Well, normal, like you said, the numbers are not a good indicator of whether a country is doing better or worse at containing this outbreak. Now, that's because there's a wide variation in healthcare standards. Myanmar has officially, officially zero cases of infection, but it was only until a few weeks ago that it got test kits for the virus. And before that, it had to send samples to Thailand for testing. Myanmar shares a long border with China, so there is some concern that infections have simply gone undetected. Thailand, meanwhile, has a good healthcare system, but it has been disorganized. For example, the government first tried to meet the huge public demand for face masks, but it was forced to scale back after hospitals complained they did not have enough masks. Uh, Vietnam has been very focused in its approach. It was one of the first few countries to ban entry from mainland China to contain the virus. It locked down entire communes and it circulated information on new cases as soon as they were discovered. So the public panic there has not been so pronounced. Interesting. So, Alina, let me get to you now. What is the position now in Indonesia? I mean, there's been a perception that the country was in denial for quite a while, claiming no cases for a very long time. What is the situation now? Indeed, Nirmal, after weeks of claiming to have zero infection cases, Indonesia finally announced its first cases early this month on March 2. And just about a week later, it has recorded more than 30 confirmed cases and its first death, uh, who is a um, British woman holidaying in Bali. Um, it's baffling how prior to the announcement of the confirmed cases made by President Joko Widodo, senior government officials like the health minister uh, had maintained the country was virus-free. Uh, what agitated Indonesians most was the use of religious reasons such as praying more to explain the lack of cases. Uh, it's just uh, not possible. China is Indonesia's top trading partner and Chinese tourists were the second largest group of foreign visitors last year. Um, people felt that the government was too relaxed and not serious enough, unable to detect cases or was trying to cover up. Why was the government acting in such a disorganized manner? Uh, it probably stems from fear, fear of uh, triggering panic among Indonesians and fear of affecting the economy. Uh, but this seeming lack of urgency and transparency had triggered even more restlessness. People were quietly hoarding masks 
and hand sanitizers. Uh, criticisms grew, including from the diplomatic community in Jakarta. Uh, but after the announcement, things have moved a lot faster. Public communication has improved. Any virus-related information is being relayed through one channel, the health ministry. Uh, but the authorities still remain tight-lipped about the cases, like not wanting to disclose patients' nationalities, where they are located, their travel history, which had caused uh, some confusion and worry as people are not able to manage risks to themselves. Like, should they travel to such and such a country? Uh-huh. Okay, Nadira, are you there? How has... Yes. I mean, Malaysia has been in the news for other reasons. It's been distracted from its response to the virus by its ongoing political dramas, right? And meanwhile, the cases have shot up and you, in fact, have this new, potentially very alarming um, uh, issue of the thousands of people who are apparently at this mosque. So we can talk, talk about that a bit later. But has Malaysia missed an opportunity to contain the virus? What is the situation there? Okay, the situation now in Malaysia is that we have uh, 158 cases of COVID-19 so far. Uh, while the absence of a health minister at the height of the outbreak did raise the question. We have to note that bureaucracy continues with or without a minister in place. Um, in this case, the ministry has been doing a great job at containing the virus. Uh, they are very transparent in dealing with the masses, especially in debunking fake news triggered by panic. Um, other than conducting briefings with media organizations, the, uh, the ministry uh, also has a telegram group set up and updates no matter how small are shared there. Um, its director general also is very active uh, in disseminating information via his Twitter account. And these days, uh, press conferences are also streamed online, so it can be viewed by the public. So um, in terms of uh, whether there is panic, like really, really panic going on uh, in Malaysia, I can see that uh, Malaysians have been quite calm in dealing with the outbreak uh, due to these um, to, due to the information shared by the ministry itself and uh -huh. former PM also Dr. Mahade also some time of political crisis just to announce a 20 billion uh, financial stim uh, stimulus package to overcome the impact of COVID-19 so we're all banding together and um, yeah because of that everyone is calm and everything is going great Tell me something in Malaysia, uh, uh, you know, the behavioral changes like, for example, hand washing and sanitizers and whatnot, wearing masks or not wearing masks or whatever. Have they taken root in at least in, in KL? Sorry, can you repeat? Uh, in in Malaysia, you have you know across the across the world, you have behavioral changes in response to this pandemic. People washing hands more frequently, using hand, uh, hand sanitizers, and you have this mask issue. Right? People wanted masks and are wearing masks. Yeah, are we seeing that in Malaysia, at least in KL? Uh, is it is that yeah, quite uh, noticeable? Yeah. So far, uh, we can see that a lot of uh, uh, public uh, in uh, now in Malaysia they are opting to wear masks wherever wherever they go, and um, they always carry sanitizer. It's Pretty hard. It's still pretty hard to actually find um, hand sanitizers and also masks. But uh, we have seen, uh, you know, some uh, pharmacies carrying uh, carrying the items. Uh, uh -huh. Just that they have limit 
uh, how many and how much uh, an individual can, can actually buy. buy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hui Yi, yeah. uh, back to you out there in Bangkok. What is ASEAN doing about this in terms of a collective or collaborative approach? Uh, is ASEAN being effective, exchanging information, coordinating you know, travel bans and whatnot? Publicly, ASEAN ministers have committed to strengthen coordination and share information. They have agreed to refrain from doing things which threaten food security or access to basic goods. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, ASEAN health officials have held video conferences, including with Chinese experts, to discuss protocols for treatment and diagnosis. There is a WhatsApp group to share real-time information. Uh, ASEAN tells me that once the COVID-19 outbreak has been resolved, it plans to hold a forum with China on the lessons learned from this crisis. For now, though, there's a strong perception that ASEAN is not doing enough to coordinate responses to this outbreak Most of the momentum is coming from national governments. Even aid is coordinated on a bilateral basis. How bad is it, by the way, for the tourism industry in your region, and Thailand in particular, but also, say, Vietnam? Are local economies really suffering? And what, if anything, are governments doing about it? Hui? Well, before the crisis, Chinese made up the biggest group of tourists in Thailand, Vietnam and Cambodia. So China's ban on outbound group tours was a big shock to the system. Thailand's uh, tourism authority says the industry could lose up to $67 billion in revenue this year. The Tourism Council of Thailand estimates that over 800,000 people in the industry could be laid off. The thing is, now that this has become a global pandemic and travel bans are popping up all over the world, it's unclear how these estimates will hold out. Um, In terms of manufacturing, we are seeing uh, some factories in Cambodia and Myanmar uh, slowing down their work or even stopping work because they do not have enough orders or raw material. Uh, Workers we know are being laid off. Uh, This month, the Thai cabinet approved an $18 billion stimulus package, which includes soft loans and tax benefits. Cambodia has set aside up to $2.8 billion to cope with the economic fallout. Mm, really, really uh, quite grim, actually, if you look at the potential layoffs. Um, can I get to you, Arlena? Uh, one other question. Can you tell us something about what Indonesia is doing to deal with this pandemic in terms of the health system, the public health system and society and the government machinery? Is it up to it? And what are, what are these plans I've been reading for a quarantine island. Could you tell us a little bit? Maybe start with that. And then we, you, the quarant- uh, tell me a little bit more about the healthcare system. Okay, so the, the, the um, quarantine island first, okay? So, um, mm-hmm. as you know, Indonesia is a vast uh, archipelago made up of 17,000 islands faced with a large population and limited budget and healthcare resources. Uh, turning islands into quarantine facilities seems like a good idea. So by the end of this month, uh, March, it hopes to get a special facility ready on remote Galang Island, which will serve as an observation shelter and quarantine center for a thousand patients. Um, uh, To reach Galang from Singapore, you 
just need to hop on a ferry to Batam and then drive south for around an hour or so. Um, in February, two other islands have been used as quarantine facilities. Um, one in Natuna Island for citizens evacuated from Wuhan and the other in Sabaru Island near Jakarta for crew uh, from cruise ships, uh, including the Diamond Princess. Uh, at Natuna, the residents had protested as they were worried about getting infected. Sabaru Island is un un uh, uninhabited, but the challenge is the weather. Strong waves make it difficult to transport supplies. So the Galang Island facility is not so populated, but at the same time, close enough to Batam where you have access to hospitals and proper supplies, accommodation, medicine, and close enough to an international airport and seaports. Um, experts tell me historically, islands have been used for quarantine for respiratory diseases such as tuberculosis and uh, smallpox. Mm -hmm. In fact, the second largest quarantine island in the world is Singapore's St. John's for cholera cases in the early uh, 20th century. So as long as they are equipped properly with enough food, shelter, medication, and there are good evacuation plans for patients who may need intensive care, this approach may well work. So uh -huh. Indonesia has had experience preparing for outbreaks such as the avian flu and SARS. So the um, uh, health SOPs in line with WHO standards are in place. They have the capacity to detect the virus, conduct lab tests, and trace contacts. The fear is if there is a surge in cases. This can put a strain on the resources and overwhelm the healthcare system, something we hope won't happen. Okay, Nadira, if I could give you, get back to you just for 30 seconds quickly. If you can tell me, I'm intrigued by this mosque, uh, uh, this, this issue at the mosque. How alarming is it in your view? Uh, in my personal view, it is very alarming because you don't know how many people have been infected by the virus. And they have some are quite, um, uh, some are quite selfish in a sense that even though they have um, they have shown symptoms, they refuse uh -huh. to get checked up. Uh -huh. Yeah, they refuse to get checked up. So um, this is the thing. This is one of the things that um, alarm the public as a whole in Malaysia. Because as of Thursday, um, the health authorities are tracking around five thousand participants of the gathering and uh, it took place uh, at a mosque on the outskirts of KL between February 27th and March 1st uh, involving mm -hmm. 10,000 people from several countries. So can you imagine that some of these people, like thousands of them have gone back to their uh, home country not knowing that whether they have been infected or not. So it's the, um, uh, the refusal to, checked up, to get checked up mm -hmm. Uh, it's quite scary. Yeah, very alarming indeed with that kind of spread and geographical spread. We'll have to keep track of this. Well, um, Alina, Nadira, Hui, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's busy for all of us. And uh, appreciate appreciate your spending, uh, your spending some time for Asian Insider. Here in the US, we are at the beginning of the pandemic and the trajectory is not encouraging. The trajectory of, for cases in the U.S. at the moment is pretty much the same as that for Italy and Korea, where cases just exploded. And there are serious concerns that the, the United States public health system will not be able to handle the caseload that is coming. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirbal Ghosh.